In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Three in One, who brings us commands, so that we might see them fulfilled. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, his name was Zoran. And just by his name alone, you can probably pick up that he wasn't really a native to this country. I got to know Zoran while I was in the seminary. In fact, while I was at the catering job that I did in order to help put me through the seminary. And I got this catering job and pretty much through the... the, the the gossip that goes through the, uh, the, the organization, it, people found out that what I was studying, that I was going to the seminary and that I was studying to be a pastor. And that's how I, I ended up meeting Zoran. Zoran was actually from Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, if you know anything about Bosnia, you know that Bosnia is a state in the former Yugoslavia. What happened there is that there were two warring parties in that country. And they had this huge civil war. And it divided those countries up. And so you had the Bosnians that were pretty much uh, ethnically and religiously Muslim. And then you had the Serbs that were ethnically and religiously Christian, Orthodox Christian. And they started to fight one another. In fact, it was, unfortunately, it was the Serbians, the Christian folks, that began to invade Bosnia and to do this thing that, well, they called it ethnic cleansing. And we remember how horrible ethnic cleansing is from World War II and Rwanda and all sorts of other places. That's the same kind of thing that these people were doing to Zoran's people. Zoran had grown up embroiled in a hatred towards Christians. He had grown up knowing that Christians hated him and feeling deep down inside of himself that he hated Christians. They were the people that were trying to invade his land. They were the people that were trying to kill his fellow family members. And Zoran joined the army and fought against the Christians. And because of that, Zoran had a permanent limp. He was still a fantastic server. I don't know how he did it. Because he would walk around with his limp, but he would be able to carry trays that were twice as heavy as anything that I could ever carry and never drop a thing. He was an amazing guy, but walked around with his limp. This permanent reminder of something that a Christian had done to him. A grenade that had gone off that had been thrown his way by a Christian. And so, it struck his entire family and all of his friends as a little bit odd. That when he moved to the United States, in order to get away from the fighting and everything that was happening in Bosnia, that when he moved to the United States, after he had been in the United States for a little while, he... Converted to Christianity. He converted to the religion of these people that had been attacking him. He converted to the religion of his enemy. 
It was a tough thing for him to do, but he knew that it was the right thing to become a Christian. And maybe to be a little bit better of a Christian than the Christians that had thrown a grenade at him. Zoran, by the time that I had met him, had been a Christian for about a year at this point. And like I said, things went through the organization, through the serving staff, and they knew that this guy who had just been brought on, that he was studying in order to become a pastor. And so sure enough, one of those days, in the cooler, Zoran came into the cooler and cornered me. And said, Jay, You are going to be pastor, yes? He really did talk like that. And I said, yeah, yeah I am. I have a question for you. Like, okay, yeah, go ahead. And I already at this point had been trained by the seminary. Answer no question that you really cannot answer quite yet. Even though you are at the seminary, you're not completely all the way through. And so I was ready to bring out my response of, I don't know that much about that yet. I'll let you know in a little while, blah, 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 blah. But he had asked me a question that I should have been able to answer. He asked me this question. What is the hardest commandment for you to keep? And at first I started off with this weasel answer of, well, you know, they're all hard for me to keep. And he looked at me kind of like, that's a weasel answer. (laughs) And I was stuck flipping through the Rolodex of all of those Ten Commandments. And going, gee, which one of these is hardest for me to keep? It's a tough question. But the even tougher thing that I wrestled with that day is that I couldn't tell Zoran right away. I couldn't say, you know, I really have a problem keeping the first commandment or, you know, I have a horrible potty mouth from being a bartender for a few years. I have a problem keeping the second commandment or whatever it was. What really struck me so deeply about that experience is that I, by trying to answer that question, was faced with the the fact that I really wasn't trying to keep those commandments. Because if I was, I would know which one I struggled with most, at least that day. I didn't. Maybe you're in that same boat. Maybe you're in that boat. We can get in that comfortable boat pretty easily of knowing that our sins are forgiven by God and eventually not really caring about those commandments that He gave to us. I mean, if you think about it, this Lent, one of the disciplines that I'm doing is I'm trying to memorize certain Scripture verses, and I have those Scripture verses on my mind almost all of the time. They're always sort of running through my head. And if I'm trying to do that, 
and those are always running through my mind, then if I'm really trying to keep those Ten Commandments, shouldn't they be running through my mind just a little bit more often as well? Can I even count them off on my fingers and say I know what they are? It's a disturbing thing to have these commandments from God. These things that He says to us as commands, as you shall. We're okay with God being declarative. We're going to go back and we're going to do a little bit of grammar. I know they don't teach it in schools anymore. We're still going to do it. I'm an English major. Get used to it. A declarative sentence is a sentence that says, this is something that happened. An imperative sentence is a sentence that says, you will do this or else. We're okay with God being declarative with us. We're okay with God saying to us, your sins are forgiven. Totally declarative sentence. We're okay with even God saying to the children of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and out of slavery. Declarative sentence. The Israelites were probably like, yeah, you are, you're great. Until the golden calf thing arrives, but that's further on down the road. But when God starts getting imperative with us, We're not really sure that we want that God anymore. You shall do this. You shall not do that. Who is this God telling me what to do with my life? I don't really like it when God's imperative with us. Or when other people are imperative with us for that matter either. We rebel against it. We push against those commands almost sometimes just because they're commands. So how do we fix this? How do we understand a God who is loving, but a God who gives commands? Because we want the God who says, Your sins are forgiven because I love you so much. Declarative sentence. But we're a little bit afraid of the God who says, You shall do this, and if you don't do this, you are a sinner. Imperative plus a declarative at the end there. Well, Jesus actually gives us a little bit of a peek into how we resolve that conflict between this loving God and this commanding God. When he goes through that temple with that cord of whips. Jesus, the ultimate rebel, thumbing his nose at all of those imperatives that all of those people have been giving to his people all of that time. Setting up those money changing tables and selling cattle and doves. But when Jesus goes through and does that. It's interesting, John adds this little editorial note about what the disciples were thinking about. The disciples were actually thinking about Psalm 69. They were thinking about this 
passage in the Psalms where God is actually being imperative. Zeal for your house shall, our translation is a little bit different, but zeal for your house shall, imperative word, shall, consume me. In Jesus, the shalls are lived out. In Jesus, all of the things that God says, you shall and you shall not, are lived out in Himself. He fulfills those commands. He does those commands on your behalf. And then, going up on the cross and giving up His life for yours, He transfers all of His shalls, all of His obedience to you. So that now it's no longer an imperative shall. You shall love the Lord your God. But it is... A declarative. This is what your life will look like. This is what your life will look like in the resurrection completely. Because at that point, uh, everything that Jesus is doing inside of you right now will be fulfilled. But right now, you're starting to live that out. You're starting to live out the imperatives as declaratives. You're starting to love your neighbor because you know you shall not murder. You're starting to be content because you know you shall not covet. You're starting to see all of those things bubble up in your life because He died for you on that cross because He fulfilled all of those things. You don't actually have to follow Those Ten Commandments. You don't have to keep them perfectly. Because of Him. He kept them for you. And now, you can keep them as a part of your life. As a beautiful thing in your life. No longer an imperative. But now, you are declared by God to have those things for yourselves.